Welcome to Afro Catalyst. I'm Isaac Wekufoko Jr., founder of Boto Emerging Markets Group, a leading consultancy focused on the global south. Each month, I talk to trailblazers to understand the challenges and opportunities they face in pushing their respective industries forward. Coming up, I speak to Adebayo Oke Lawal, the brains behind Orange Culture, one of Nigeria's most talked about fashion labels, which has made a name for itself by openly challenging views on modern-day masculinity. While this has certainly ruffled some feathers, Bayo's gender-fluid designs have been featured at major fashion weeks and even landed him in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and the Financial Times. In this episode, I talk to Bayo about building a socially conscious business in an ever-evolving industry. It's been a tough year. Um, and I just want to ask you, what are some ways that designers have innovated in the last year to mitigate the global economic downturn? Uh, and especially designers in Africa, because, you know, um, I feel like there is this resilience and it's what I call Africa resilience. It's forced people to sort of move towards a digital age. And people are thinking more of, you know, innovative ways to run their businesses, to interact with customers, to show their collections. There's a brand called Hanifa, who is, I think her brand is Congolese, or she's Congolese by heritage. And she launched one of the first um, digital fashion shows with uh, models, well, with 3D, do I call them 3D models or with digital models sort of walking the runway and showing her collection off. And it also showed us a lot of gaps as well. For example, if we had maybe 10 orders in a day, would have like five not work because of the issues with payment platforms and with technology as well. And so... It showed us a lot of gaps that also need to be fixed in terms of the fintech aspect of the creative business, of e-commerce especially, which is why I was excited to see investments in Flutterwave and in Paystack, because I feel like we really need them to be at the apex for us to also succeed in terms of our e-com, because if they aren't able to receive payments from all these different platforms, it's discouraging for our customers when they come on and they are failing to <laughs> for their cards to go through and their this to go through. So that did affect a lot of our income, um, to be very honest, 100% honest. Um, but I would say that we did see a rush of online orders and online interaction on the online store. Other countries had probably moved ahead for years, but I think with Africans, it took us a lot longer and it took a whole pandemic to shift us towards that technological state. Let, let, let me step back for a second, Bayo. So you, I, from what I understand, you have a background in finance. So you were, a, you, know, you were a good African kid who went to school and studied finance and all that. And now you are one of Africa's most talked about fashion designers. Why did you get into this space and what motivated you to switch? Um, I always say that I don't think it was ever a switch. I think it was just, uh, oh, I can't do fashion. I have to do something. You know, in Nigeria, it was hard to envision fashion as a, as a career when I was growing up, you know. And so my parents were not going to support me going to fashion school or, you know, doing that or whatever. Um, they were like, you need to go to school. You need to have a proper degree because guess what? If you don't succeed in Nigeria, you have to have something <laughs> that people will be able to utilize to give you money for. You know, there has to be a degree of some sort. So I grew up in that system of people telling you, oh, you can't succeed in fashion. You have to do something else. But I'm a very stubborn person. So for me, since I was like 10, I already knew that I'm going to go into fashion no matter what. You know, I might do every other thing. I might go to school. I might graduate. I might, you know, be good in class. I might be smart. I might do this. I might do that. 
but I am going to become a fashion designer. So it was never a switch. It was just a, a, a step towards what I wanted to do or something to do to just say, okay, you know, I've done this now. Now I can do what I want, you know. Um, and thankfully it was finance because at the end of the day, finance is something that is needed everywhere. But at the end of the day, for me, I always wanted to be in fashion. So fashion was always the, the long game. Um, so it, when I graduated, I knew that all my savings were going to go into launching my brand. I didn't have any investment. I mean, there were no investment opportunities at the time. So I just saved all the money I had. I worked, you know, worked everywhere, interned since I was like 16, looking for places to just save money, to build know-how, to learn more about fashion. And eventually launched my brand in 2010. So yeah, it was all of my little savings I threw into it. I just took a leap of faith um, and created this brand that I run now. You know, when you talk to a lot of founders in Africa, they, they will say something close to what you said about, you know, I took a leap of faith and I saved some money. And I always say to people that there always seems to be a story behind the story because there are many Africans who also take a leap of faith and somehow that doesn't happen for them. What do you think your X factor has been so far? What has been the secret ingredient that, uh, whether it's a self-intrinsic or, or outside influence, whatever, what have you, that kept pushing you to, you know, do those internships, uh, save that money, set up the brand, even in spite of, I'm sure, people who were not overly supportive, even in, in spite of maybe self-doubt, despite knowing your own, your own, your own talent and your own, um, your own, um, I guess, your, your own promise. I knew growing up that fashion was the only thing that was that made me happy. You know, um, I'm I was very I was in, I mean, I'm an intelligent person, so going to school and succeeding in school was never a difficult thing for me. It was just more that I wanted to be happy. I wanted to do something that I was passionate about, and I wanted to do something that I felt needed to be done. You know, I wanted to create a brand that represented the kind of guy that I was. I mean, I grew up in a space where, you know. Um, as a man, there were all these stereotypes that were just, you know, constantly um, imposed on us in terms of how men were supposed to dress. Um, what the fashion was at the time was part of what really helped push that narrative or that stereotypical narrative. And for me, being a fashion designer, I knew that that was my way of speaking up. You know, I knew that that was the place where I found a sense of purpose and a sense of reasoning. And so when I launched my brand and I got all of the, you know, hate and all of the you know, negativity and everything, I knew more so that the brand that I wanted to create was most important at that time, you know, because the kind of conversations we're having about men and about, you know, the continent and, you know, the kind of narrative we're putting out, and the pushback from people within the continent was a very good reason for me to keep going. And I feel like till now, over the years, it's been the change and the sort of re reasoning that I've seen over the years, you know, because of the power of fashion keeps pushing me to keep going, you know. But even as a child, just being able to see how people reacted to me just because of the way I dressed, because of the way I um, spoke, because of the way I created fashion, made it constantly a passion point for me just to keep going it's like okay keep going this is important people are listening people need to hear this even when people weren't listening i was like people need to hear this and now people are listening I'm like keep going because there's so much you can do with fashion i always say fashion can change lives it can save lives people think oh you know it's just clothing but for me fashion has always been more than clothing i believe that fashion can create social change you know and i believe even on the economical level can create social economic change as well and so for me it's just always been that it's been making people see what fashion can be and not what fashion 
was perceived to be at the time, you know, this non-successful industry, this not, you know, oh, you can never succeed. You cannot do this. You cannot do that, you know, but creating a brand that will stand the test of time and people will see and say, okay, this is an example of a successful fashion brand within the continent, made in Africa, made in Nigeria, with a story that is so strong and so beautiful. Just, you know, being able to say proudly that I am a Nigerian and African designer, no, it's, it's, it's powerful to hear. Your design and the way you do your work has a lot of influences around gender and fluidity and things around the nature. Um, what is the definition of masculinity to you? And why do you keep championing this message as something that seems to be integral to your values and also to the sort of um, brand you're building uh, in Nigeria, but also really um, around the world? For me, it's about liberated expression. It's about men being able to be how they want to be, to live how they want to live, to express how they want to express, sound how they want to sound. For me, masculinity is diverse expressions of manlyhood. You know, it's not about some um, stereotypical expression, which, you know, it's like, oh, deep voice, hard, in, unemotional, um, this, that, you know, he's the one that has to do this, he's the one that, you know, da, 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 all of those annoying, you know, um, <laughs> Um, what would I say, stifling expressions of manlyhood that have caused so many men to lack vulnerability and emotional intelligence because of the ways they've been taught to grow as men in the continent. So for me, masculinity is being able to let go of that and just be and express and emote emotional intelligence, vulnerability, expression, you know, just being able to be themselves and to accept diverse expressions of men, you know. So for me, that's how I think of masculinity. And I think why it's important to champion is because, for example, I would saying that, um, I think it was last year, the highest rate of suicide in Nigeria was men. And a lot of men over the years, you know, I've, I've, as through my interactions, I would say, when you talk to them, there's always that restraint to express vulnerability and emotionality. It's like, oh, they don't want to feel, they don't want to say that they're feeling, they don't want to say that they're hurt, they don't want to, it's always like, oh, I need to be a man, you know, even as children, I've been told, oh, you need to be a man, don't cry, you need to be a this, you know, and so a lot of men are being stifled, you know, even think about a lot of men and their dads, how many boys are able to tell, or how many dads tell their boys, oh, I love you, or give them hugs, you know, there's always that distance, not all the time, it's not a hundred percent, but like, I always call it toxic hypermasculinity. So that sense of, you know, um, holding on to this idea, you know, and allowing it to stifle you has been a problem over the years. And I think a lot of men have been held back because of that. And even a lot of men's relationships with their families, with their friends, with this, with all of that. So I remember when we were doing a collection and we are talking to these boys, a lot of these boys had been abused growing up. I never spoke about it because they were told, oh, you're yeah, a guy, you know, that's not something you talk about, you know. They've been abused by their nannies, by the drivers, you know, by staff, by their teachers, had been touched by someone. A lot of these men didn't talk about because they felt like, oh, they were men. It's not something you talk about, you know. It's not something we do, you know. It's not something that you emote. Why should I be sad about it? Ah, it's just a man. A man is supposed to have sex, supposed to enjoy it anyways, you know. And so all of these things are things that I feel like have been problematic thought processes and theo and um and um, ideologies that men have held onto. And I feel like those things need to be discussed, need to be addressed and need to be let go of, you know? And yeah, so this, uh, that's one of the reasons I keep on thinking about it and bringing it back up. Why is it important for men to show vulnerability, to emote, to, I mean, I was saying that 
women are better at emoting and feeling vulnerability. And so they have, you know, higher emotional intelligence than men. And, 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 and so what, what, what is the end game for you? What, what does it look like uh, for a man who, what does it look like for a man to, to show those traits that you believe to be of sort of quote unquote higher value in society? You will be healthier. <laughs> simple. It's really just as simple as that. He'll be healthier. He'll be happier. I mean, women are more open to the idea of emotions. You know what I mean? Um, just because, you know, they've been taught that they need to be emotional because they, they give birth to children. You know, they need to, you know, show their children love. A man's supposed to go to work and bring the money home. Women are supposed to be caregivers. And so a lot of women are built and are taught growing up to take care of and to care for and to feel and to question and to this. But, you know, a lot of men, on the other hand, don't necessarily feel like they need to, even though they should, you know. Being emotionally intelligent, being vulnerable is healthier for you. You know, it allows you express your pain. It allows you discuss your pain. It allows you question things. It allows you say what you feel. And I don't ever see that being a bad thing. You know, I feel like that just leaves us healthier and happier. It's like you live, people always say, you know, a problem shared is a problem half solved. You know what I mean? It's like you being able to share your problems and express them and feel things will allow us, you know, be healthier as men and allow us to give love and show love even better. You know, allow us to live happier and more fulfilled lives, you know? And I think it's really that simple, you know? Once you're able to do that, I feel like you find yourself just being freer at the end of the day. It's like, just lifting that burden off your chest. I mean, just imagine it's like a weight on your chest just being lifted off, you know? So I think it's more, I think it's better. And, and we'll also foster better relationships, foster healthier relationships. And we'll also be more accepting of each other, you know, and less judgmental of each other and our different expressions, you know? So I think there's just so many healthy ways to go about, you know, but um, yeah, I will stop there. And, and then I guess along that, if, if I was to visualize your designs, um, you know, fluidity obviously plays a big role, um, the idea of expression of vulnerability and emotion and emotiveness. How do you represent that in your, in your designs? How, how, how does it come out in your designs? If, uh, if someone is to picture what a typical bio design looks like, if they haven't seen your work yet. The colors, you know, the fabric choices, I think the way we express fashion, the shapes we utilize, the silhouettes, I think you can definitely see just uh, the way we play with vulnerability, you know, I mean, we question why men need to wear certain colors or why men are supposed to be, always be in black and blue. We play with colors that are supposed to be feminine, silhouettes are supposed to be feminine. We play with this idea of, you know, non-gender, you know, when we create clothing. And I think that shows this level of vulnerability. Even the stories we tell and we, you know, produce here, we source our fabrics here, da, da, da. So for us, it was a lot easier to function even within a pandemic. But for a lot of brands who has resorted for many years to produce in Italy or in China and international relations was highly affected by the pandemic. A lot of brands were unable to function and unable to even sell their clothes because where are they going to make the clothes, you know? So it forced designers to question their supply chain and question why their supply chain is the way it is and start to look into developing our community because at the end of the day, you might say, oh, I don't want to produce in Africa, it's too stressful, it's this, it's that. But then if you as an African don't, who's going to do it for us? No savior is coming to develop our community for us. We have to be the one to develop our industrial community and develop our spaces so that we can function and our supply chains can have healthy um, locomotion even within the system as well. So I think that was also a benefit that came and also helps to sort of bring income back 
into the industry because at the end of the day, we need to have a circular, what's the word? We have to have a circular sort of direction in terms of how we function as fashion designers, which basically means that we put out, but we also bring back in. And we're not putting out and giving back to another community. People starting to work with a supply chain here also helps to bring back into our industry and look into developing our community. I think it pushes to start thinking of community development as a form of sustainability and not just fabrics and you know all this all the stories that the magazines have printed and said is sustainability. Africa historically, when it comes to I guess our clothes and what we wear, at least as an expression of self, traditionally has been, I'd say, quite fluid, right? Um, what happened, you know, what, 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 when did that change? And how much of the continent's past influences you're thinking on, on this subject? I think colonization as well also had a part to play. <laughs> Maybe then we're ignorant, but ignorance was bliss. And so people didn't really feel <laughs> they needed to look a certain way, but yeah. But you know, it's sad, you know, I always say sad. And I feel like that's why we need to constantly bring these things back because people need to see why. I always feel like it's important to ask yourself why, why you're doing, something a certain way you know why you attach yourself to a certain thing or you know a certain description a certain you know expression why are you so tied to it when people begin to ask themselves why and see that the reason is honestly baseless then things will change up a bit more so why you, you've also used fashion as a platform to vocalize your political stance how do you balance your level of i guess vocality if that's a word around political issues and business and do you ever feel conflicted to be honest, I really don't. I, I, I've always been outspoken, even as a brand, and I've always been confronted, even as a brand, with tension based on my vocality or vocalization of my thoughts. And so now I really just don't care anymore. <laughs> and that's as honest as it gets. Um, um, I just do what I need to do, and I do what I feel. I, you know, I've always been someone to believe in emotional an emotional expression and you know being free to say what you feel and if someone chooses to not work with me as a business because of that then I'm, I'm not the right business for them so I don't allow myself be hindered by oh will an investor think me too vocal or this if they don't align with that then we don't want them as well you know so at the end of the day my country is my country, my race is my race if people are going through stuff you know if we are going through something if we're fighting a battle and the community who has helped us to be where we are today um, is going through it and we don't speak up, then who are we? Like you, I mean, like why, you know, what, what exactly are, are we just taking and not giving back to the community? Are we just not supporting? Are we not helping the community? You know, we have this platform, what are we doing with it? I feel like if a brand has no, um, no base for, for, um, no care for political stance or no care for happenings within their community, then that brand is problematic, you know? So, um, yeah, so I think people need to appreciate when brands are outspoken more because at the end it shows that they care for their community. You know, it shows that they care for the people that are giving to them and are selling, and they're selling to them, not just cash cows for them. Absolutely. What, what, what surprised you the most in the last 10 years of, um, I think you said you opened up in 2010. What, what surprised you the most about your work, both at home and abroad? I think hearing just the impacts that it has created and the many brands that have taken risky moves or become outspoken because of us, I think that will always be a huge thing for me.
what I find people find most surprising over the or over the years, I think especially internationally when I travel, is more that you know, with everything that we don't have, it's like, oh, you don't have an investor, oh, you don't have this, oh, you didn't go to fashion school, oh, you didn't have this infrastructure, you guys don't have factories in Lagos, you don't have this, you don't have that. Oh, you have to, oh, wow, you know, so all of the lacking <laughs> and still doing is really something that I feel like makes people look up to, or makes young people so surprised about why Nigerian brands are succeeding because like, why exactly are we thriving despite the lack of support and lack of investment? I feel like that's something that's hard to envision for anyone who lives, for example, in a developed country or lives in an industry that, or works in an industry that is, you know, fully equipped, you know, it's like, how are you existing without? And I think that's something that will always be, you know, shocking for anyone who's looking from the outside. It's like looking through the, through the looking glass and seeing this empty, empty, um, maybe an empty sort of like a land and somebody's building with no bricks or with no <laughs> with no sand or concrete or no shovels and the person is still be building a house, you know, successfully. So I think when people look at the fashion industry in Nigeria, they always assume that we have all of these things going for us because a lot of us are thriving. But when they find out that we don't and they find out all the things that we're doing ourselves, it's always shocking to people. Yeah, it's it's like you you are scaling the building with all the harness and the wing and the prayer and hoping for the best. Hoping for the best. <laughs> great company, great great brand, um, awesome founder, uh, very self aware, building a, a great brand across the continent and the world. Where do you see all this going? What's the future look like? I think um, just expansion. Really, I think that's always been my plan to expand more. Um, and to also do more in terms of community development and in terms of fashion education as well. Because I feel like, you know, for me, that's always been a thing, you know, just thinking about how we can develop what exists already so that whoever is coming after us will have more options and will have something better to stand on um, so that investors won't look and say, oh, there's no yardstick for success <laughs> like they do for our own generation. It's like we are, in this generation are creating a yardstick for what fashion what a successful business in fashion can be, you know? And so I think that just expanding global domination, global presence, selling in different countries, um, working in terms of um, fashion education, exporting, you know, um, also doing more mentorship programs. You know, I think for me, it's just really about branching out into as many things as possible, but also still ensuring that the brand can be felt and experienced in different parts of the world. So everywhere, you know, you are, there's some place that you can at least connect to that you can access the brand, you know. So I think that's very important for me. Bayo, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, man. This has been super, super humbling. You are incredible. You you are a brand, like you are you you're a big deal. But just from talking to you over the phone again, I don't I don't know you, but I, it sounds like you live your values, and I think that's incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for for not giving me a linear interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Afrocatalyst, presented by Boto Emerging Markets Group, a leading investment and strategy consultancy focused on the global south. To find out more about us, please visit afrocatalyst.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with future episodes. And let us know what you think by rating us wherever you're listening. I'm Isaac Wekufoko Jr. Until next time. <laughs>